Please stand as you are able for today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Paula, for reading our lesson this, this morning. Uh, grace and peace to each of you. Uh, we're so grateful to the orchestra, uh, to our musicians, uh, Casey and Paula, for leading us and others. Uh, Paul Farrington is on the bench today, and uh, we are so grateful for his ministry among us. We remember Greg in our prayers. Greg Bunn is under the weather today, and we remember him, but we're grateful for Paul. Uh, we have a deep bench in our music ministry, and we're so grateful, Paul, to you and to your family uh, for sharing with us today. Uh, I've got to admit, I'm grieving a little bit today, not only over the accident of our bishop, but also over the game by the Nolansville team in the Little League World Series yesterday. I was a little grieved by that, and some of you were. Uh, if you watched them play Hawaii, I don't know what they're feeding those boys in Honolulu, but they are big boys. Uh, I was slightly comforted, relieved, Paula, by the fact that our Vanderbilt football team uh, paid them back last night in, in Hawaii. I don't know if you saw that, but 63 to 10, Jim, that's a different thing than what we're used to. Uh, and so uh, we're comforted by that. 
And what a great joy it is to be with you in worship and to be with Lim's parents and family. Uh, told his uh, folks as they were on their way out, the name Lim, if you did, didn't know, means strong-willed warrior. So let that be a warning to you. Uh, strong-willed warrior soldier. And uh, we uh, give thanks to God for Lim and for his family. Well, we're continuing our series today on deliverance. We're in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in the book of Exodus for the next two months. And just to review for a moment, if you weren't here last week, the word Exodus comes from the Greek word exosia, which literally means departure, which telegraphs the theme of the book. The book of Exodus, the second book of the Torah, the five books of Moses, contains the story of the deliverance, the departure of the Hebrew slaves from Egyptian bondage. Our Jewish friends refer to this book as the book of Shemot, not Exodus, but Shemot, which literally means names, because in the Hebrew psyche, it is the names that tell the story. The names like Jochebed and Miriam and Moses and Pua and Shifra, as we talked about last week. Oftentimes, earthly politicians, rulers, and leaders forget the names of those who don't contribute to the narrative that they want to get across. But in this case, God always remembers the names of his own children. God remembers not just the rich and famous, but the midwives, the bond servants, the slaves, the underside of history, compassionate and courageous souls who fear God more than they fear the Pharaoh. And we talked about how last week, even the unnamed princess, the daughter of the new king, participates in the rescue of that baby in a basket on the Nile River, whose very name means drawn from the water, Moses. Exodus 3, I don't have to tell you, is a call story. It's a commissioning story. But before we go there, I want to give you just a little bit of content, a little bit of context and backdrop. One of the reasons that I think Moses was such a good pick for God for the role of deliverer is because he was born a Hebrew, but he was raised an Egyptian. When the princess saved him from the Nile River from drowning, she commissioned, you remember Miriam, who happened to be Moses' sister, to find a nanny, a wet nurse, to raise him. And so for three years, who did she choose? Jochebed. For three years, Jochebed nursed her own son and got paid for it by the Egyptian Federal Union, which is a pretty good deal for Jochebed. He was born Hebrew, raised Egyptian, which means that from an early age, Moses knew two cultures. He understood two perspectives, the marginalized and the privileged. It reminds me a little bit of the leadership of St. Paul, and this is in the New Testament, who also was born a Jew but raised a Greek. And so early on in the life of Paul, he understood two perspectives, which I think later, after his conversion, enabled him to expand his outreach to include Gentiles as well as Jews in the life of the church. 
I don't know about you, but this is just me. I'm confessing for a moment, if you don't mind, that sometimes I get a bit, I get a bit too sectarian in my own worldview and perspective to the point that I sometimes wind up narrowing the mission of Christ. I want to recommend a book to you by a Baptist, which is hard for a Methodist to do. His name is Andy Stanley, son of Charles Stanley. Uh, Andy Stanley is a PK, which means he's got to be good. Uh, He's a theological offspring, and he's written this book, it's a must read, called Not In It, To Win It. And the subtitle is, Why Choosing Sides Sidelines the Church narrows our mission, our vision, and it can. But in the case of Moses, born a Hebrew, raised an Egyptian, he has two worldviews from the beginning, which I think serves to broaden his horizon. Before we get to the text, let me mention one other thing, backdrop, context. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, and read verses 11 through 25, that's your homework, you'll see that Moses grew up as a young adult with a rather keen sense of justice. You say, where do you see that? Well, I see it in chapter 2 in three different scenarios. It's interesting that Moses seems to always be involved in intervening in conflict. He's a conflict resolution guy, and he doesn't always do it well. For example, first scenario happens When you remember, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster who's abusing a Hebrew slave, and Moses becomes so outraged that he becomes violent, and he knocks the Egyptian in the head, kills him, manslaughter, and buries him in the sand. Scenario two, the next day, he tries to break up a fight between two Hebrew brothers, and he says to the one who struck first, why did you do that? To which the Hebrew man says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to do me like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And suddenly Moses knows he's up the creek without a paddle, and he hops a camel to Midian. He goes out of Egypt to get away from Pharaoh, who now knows his Moses' picture is now in the post office, wanted dead or alive, and he hops a train to Midian. Third scenario. As soon as he gets to Midian, he goes to draw water from a well, and he sees the seven daughters of Ruel, also called Jethro, who are drawing water for their herd, and suddenly they're fallen upon by a band of thugs, of Bedouins, and once again, Mr. Conflict Resolution lifts up his staff, protects the women, and chases off the thugs. What you learn about this young adult, Moses, is that he has a low tolerance for bullies, especially those who mistreat the weak. In fact, his justice transcends all the boundaries of nationality, gender, and kinship because he's not only now taking a stand for Hebrew slaves, but also for Midianite women. In fact, he marries one of them. Her name is Zipporah, means bird, who conceives and bears a son whose name is Gershom, which means alien. Now, I've baptized a lot of babies here. I've never baptized one named Alien. I've thought of a couple of them that way. <laughs> Sojourner, Alien, 
Why? The names tell the stories. Because the baby's father is a fugitive. He is a sojourner. He is an alien. And subsequently, Moses accepts his father-in-law's job of tending sheep. He becomes a shepherd. By the way, think about it. Shepherding in this phase of his life turns out to be good training for the next phase of his life. Leading a large flock of wandering sheep in the wilderness serves him well for his next vocation after they depart from Egypt. I was reading a book the other day by Ken Spiro, who is a rabbi, a professor, a priest, who's written about Jewish history, and he makes an interesting statement for a rabbi. Listen to what he says. He says, leading the Jews is the hardest job on the planet. Jewish history clearly demonstrates how difficult it is to unify and lead such a people. I might say it's kind of like uh, herding Methodists. But Spiro says... In one of his illustrations, he tells of a meeting that happened years ago between President Truman, who at that time was president of the U.S., 200 million of us, and a meeting with Golda Meir, who was the prime minister of Israel, population 2 million. They were talking about how difficult their leadership was, and Harry said to Golda, you have no idea what it's like to lead 200 million Americans, to which Golda said... You have no idea what it's like to lead two million prime ministers, which is how she identified her own people. It isn't easy being a shepherd. It isn't easy shepherding. But now to the text. One day while Moses is shepherding in the afternoon, while he's leading his flock, he has an epiphany, a revelation at a place called Mount Horeb that may be the same mountain as Sinai where he later received the commandments. Apparently there's a bushfire, there's a shrub that has ignited and though the bush is aflame, it is not consumed. In other words, it it doesn't burn out, it just burns on. But the key verse in this saga is when Moses turns aside to see the sight. In other words, he's not in a hurry. He's observant. He's attentive. And let's be honest, prayer is nothing more than attention. I don't know about you, but I sometimes think I have a spiritual attention deficit disorder because I so often just don't have time to turn aside and see what God is doing. In Exodus 3, 4, watch this. When God saw that Moses had turned aside, God called to him from the flame, Moses, Moses. How often we miss such moments when we do not turn aside. I think it was Elizabeth Barrett Browning who penned that lyric where she said, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees, who slips off his shoes, can experience the fire. The rest of us just pluck blackberries, she said. John Oman, who was a Scottish theologian in the 20th century, said it like this. The twin perils of ministry are flurry 
and worry. Flurry dissipates energy. Worry constipates energy. Now, I'm quite sure you never thought you'd hear that word from the sacred desk, but it's true that worry constipates energy, revelation, epiphany. Pause it there for a moment. Over the last couple of years, we've had numerous calls from sister churches that have been asking about our discernment process. That we, we spent two years in a discernment process over issues within our denomination. Recently, I had a pastor call and ask me this question. Davis, how do you fast track spiritual discernment? To which I said, sir, you have the wrong number. You don't fast-track God. You don't fast-track the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite hymns William Longstaff wrote in the 19th century is called Take Time to Be Holy. Well, it, it takes time. Maybe you've discovered I have the hard way. You can't be holy in a hurry. There are some things in life you just can't do in a hurry. You, you can't perform surgery in a hurry. You, you can't paint a classical piece of art in a hurry. You can't prepare a sermon in a hurry. You can't compose an oratorio in a hurry. You can't raise a child in a hurry. I think it was Richard Foster who once said, and I agree, busyness is not of the devil, it is the devil. You can't be holy in a hurry. We have to learn to turn aside and be attentive to epiphany. In fact, it wasn't until Moses turned aside that he actually heard the call. I am the God of your father, said the Lord. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them. Notice the italicized words, please. God sees. God hears. God knows. God comes down. God delivers. Those are all relational verbs. And so far, so good. Moses is pleased to hear that God is involved, but then comes the bad news. Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh <laughs> to do my bidding. And I have to tell you, if I'm Moses at this point, I'm saying in my heart, Lord, here am I, send Casey. I'm all for God's intervention as long as God is working for me, not necessarily through me. And I want you to notice in response to God's call, Moses gives five of the best excuses that I've ever heard as to why he cannot do what God is calling him to do. And I'm going to share, I want to recommend them to you because I've used them myself. Here they are. Chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? That's the excuse of incompetence. Chapter 3, verse 13. I don't even know your name. That's the excuse of theological ignorance. Number 3, chapter 4, verse 1. Nobody will listen to me. That's the excuse that I lack credibility. I don't have position. 
Chapter 4, verse 10, I'm not eloquent. I'm not a good speaker. That's the excuse of being untalented. And here's my favorite, chapter 4, verse 13. Please, Lord, just find somebody else. I'm unavailable, and I don't want to be involved. All good reasons. And I have to confess to you that in my own call to ministry, (laughs) I delayed ordination for a year, not because I didn't trust God, but because I didn't trust me. And I thought God had the wrong man. There's only one reason why we can do what God calls us to do. And it's in chapter 3, verse 12. But I will be with you, says the Lord. Oh, you mean it's not about my competence? No. Not about your giftedness? No. Not about your credibility? Not about your... No. It's about his presence. He says when he commissions his disciples in Matthew 28 to go into the world, Lo, I will be with you always. That's our strength. And for me, at least, God overruled my reluctance by his presence. Marianne Williamson from California, who is a writer and a believer, wrote a book called A Return to Love in which she said, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves sometimes, who am I to be talented, competent, credible, faithful, holy? Actually, who are you not to be? You're beloved of God. And our playing small ball doesn't necessarily serve the world. Last word. I got the call on Thursday morning this week from our bishop's son. His name is Chris McAlilly. He's pastor of the Oxford Campus Church at the University of Mississippi. Chris and Andrew, my son, are good friends. They're both young pastors. And I said, hello, and Chris said, dad's been in an accident, speaking of the bishop. We don't know his condition, and we don't know where they've taken him. Can you call mom? And I called Lynn, and while we were talking, she didn't know where he'd been taken. Vanderbilt Hospital called. He's in the emergency room. He has multiple fractures. He's stable, but he's pretty banged up. On the way to the office that morning, on I-24, it happened. There was a multiple car wreck crash that happened there. And after it happened, there was a Hispanic man who spoke only Spanish across the guardrail who heard and saw the accident. He leaped over the guardrail. He came over to the car where the bishop was. The bishop was unconscious. But this Hispanic man found his cell phone and went back to the last call that he had made before he left home, which was a call that was made to Jefferson Furtado, who also was Hispanic. The man who found the phone didn't speak a stick of English. And when Reverend Furtado took the call, they understood each other. 
He called the bishop's assistant. They called Lynn. Chris called me. I immediately, after I hung up the phone, called Dr. David Rayford, who is the chief of clinical operation at Vanderbilt Hospital. He immediately went down to the emergency room and saw to the needs of the family. We thought of Robin Steven, who is one of the leaders of the nurses there, and she immediately went. She's a member here, as is Dave, and immediately went to care for them. I called Don Aaron, who's the PR director, a member here, PR director of the Davidson County Police, and he did his share of comforting too. And while we were working together, Bishop Pennell, our own bishop, called and said, I've been on a Zoom call with bishops around the world, and we've just heard the news. Can you tell Lynn that the whole world is interceding for Bill? When I got to the hospital, others were there keeping watch. And when I got home, I said to my wife, Honey, that's why I love the church. That's why you don't just throw away the connectional family. That's why you don't fold your tent and go home when you have a conflict. Because within seconds of that boy of the bishop's son's cry, God saw, God heard, God knew, God came down, and God delivered. It's about presence. And I've discovered in 40 years of ministry that at every turn in life, in death, in life beyond death, there are saints of God who turn aside to meet a need. It's who we are, and it's what we do. As children of God, it is our privilege to do it. <laughs> And I don't know, I suppose that God could choose to work without us, but he doesn't. God chooses us and uses us unlikely partners and gets the glory. We're still in the delivery business, and you have a call. And with the call comes the presence, and that presence is our deliverance. May it be so, in Jesus' name.